This is Philip Meyer, welcoming you to another episode of Talking About Platforms. We present and discuss relevant discoveries from the field of platform research. Hi, I'm Daniel Trabucchi. In every episode, we have a guest sharing with us one of his or her latest papers on platforms to make it accessible for everyone. And with that, let's jump right into the conversation. Welcome to a new episode of Talking About Platforms. Welcome to today's guest. Hi, Pinar. Hi, very nice to um, be here with you guys. Very nice to have you. And also, of course, welcome to my regular co-host, Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Hi, everyone. So before we start, as always, I uh, introduce uh, today's guest. Today we have Pina Oskam. Uh, she's a professor of entrepreneurship and innovation at the Said Business School at Oxford University. Um, Pina specializes in strategy, entrepreneurship, and um, is doing, has done and is doing uh, very, very interesting work in the rise of big tech platform. Um, she has a PhD, a master's, and a dual bachelor's, all from Stanford University. Daniel, with this guest, what would be your regular first question? Yeah, exactly. The first question is always the same. It's a bit of a tradition of our podcast. And uh, it's driven by the fact that we are all getting together because we are all studying platforms, but we are studying platforms from different perspectives. And probably we got here through different ways, through different paths. So the first question is, what is a platform to you and how you end up studying platforms in your professional life? Um, great question, especially the, the second one is, uh, you know, I didn't uh, intend to study platforms, but let me start with the, with the definition. Um, whenever we talk about platforms, uh, whether they're analog or digital platforms, um, the, the, the core idea is that they are, uh, they are a surface for exchange, whether it's a physical service like a street bazaar or, you know, in our case, we're studying, typically all of us are studying digital platforms, which are just programmable architectures that are intended to that become a surface for uh, interaction. Whether that interaction is between individuals, between robots, between uh, organizations, the uh, primary purpose of a digital platform is to enable interaction. And um, maybe to your second question then about uh, how um, I ended up studying digital platforms, I started uh, studying ecosystems as part of my PhD uh, research, which is now many years ago. And ecosystems were then uh, kind of emerging as an idea. And Annabelle Gower had already written her amazing first book together with Michael Cusimano. And uh, that was the time when we were starting to see kind of the, the, the beginning of Amazon and eBay, etc. And uh, from there on, though, um, as, as I continue to study technology and strategy, really my, my research uh, path took me to studying sharing economy platforms. And that was my first introduction to platforms. And that's, that's where it moved from there. And now I study platforms in finance. A nice journey that yes. led you yes. here with us, talking about the last part of what you were yeah. mentioning. Yeah. Philippe. Yeah, um, as always, we come together uh, to, to talk about the, the current and, and interesting uh, piece. And the piece that we're talking about today is not about finance, but it's also about other very regulated industries. 
And the name of the piece is uh, Digital Colonization, oh, sorry, Digital Colonization of Highly Regulated Industries and Analysis of Big Tech Platforms Entry into Healthcare and Education. Um, Pina, your co authors, and please correct me if I pronounce their names wrong, are uh, Hakan Ozalp, uh, Dizay Dinko, uh, Marcos Zachariadis, and Annabel Gower. Yeah. And it's forthcoming in the California Management Review. Correct. Um, I think this piece provides very valuable insights uh, for both practitioners um, who, who might play. Uh, the, the developed process model and the insights to their like platform strategy work, uh, but also and especially and, and like in, with growing importance for, for regulators um, to, to really better understand how these platforms acted in the past and how they might also act in the future. Um, and with that, Pinar, I, I invite you to, to give us a, an overview about your exciting work. Of course, thank you so much. So this is one of the studies that uh, that I'm most looking forward to uh, uh, for the publishing. The the idea for that this is coming out in a special issue on uh, digital platforms and um, and and um, actually the original uh, theme was was uh, COVID related, but then uh, the the idea was for us to see how uh, digitization is affecting uh, the the presence of big tech in regulated markets. And um, if you remember five years ago, the, the, the famous platform revolution book um, ended up having um, a section on um, big tech or in general digital platforms and regulated markets. And the idea there was that we will see uh, big tech entering regulated markets slowly as well as maybe avoiding them to a certain extent because of the uh, high entry costs, as well as the constant uh, uh, challenge of uh, you know, compliance. And that uh, overall the authors had argued that it's actually not easy to be in a regulated markets. And that's why these regulated markets have uh, large firms that have kind of established government relations, et cetera. Now we have started to see together with my co-authors that the regulated markets are seeing a huge presence of big tech. However, when we look at what that presence is, it's not simply just like in retail uh, where we see Amazon taking over uh, street sellers and everything going in that direction and there's a monopoly building. We see it in a much more subtle and discreet way. And we wanted to study that. What we ended up doing was we ended up looking into every single big tech move into healthcare and education, um, basically uh, starting from the 2010s, but there was not much happening there. In the last five years, there's a, a lot happening. And we ended up developing a model for big tech entry into healthcare and education because there are big similarities between them. The main idea is this. Service providers, primary service providers in healthcare and education are hospitals, doctors, as well as schools. These guys don't actually have a huge IT uh, resources and capabilities. Their data is uh, usually dispersed and uh, they also don't datafy everything. So if you think about a regular school, a public school in the UK or US, you might think about whether all exams, there are still many exams taken on paper, and there's just not a whole lot uh, that is datafied about learning, for example. And so in similarly, if you go to a private doctor in the US, there's a good chance that you're not gonna end up on the same database as uh, some other con health conglomerate. So data is either not there or dispersed. 
What big tech does is big tech actually starts and enters this industry, these industries as IT providers. And when they get access to data, they start to harmonize it. And one of the strengths that they have is that they can also combine it with data that they collect at the individual level through your Fitbit or through your child's tablet, et cetera. When they end up getting access to the data, they start to offer something that is very, very valuable to healthcare providers and education providers, which is AI and prediction tools. And that is extremely important because these guys really need to enhance learning. They need to save lives and cut costs. There's a huge pressure on healthcare systems, especially with the, with the pandemic everywhere. So prediction becomes one of the most important ways in which healthcare can be transformed. Am I going to have a heart attack in the next few years? Am I going to um, inherit some of, the, some of the ways in which kind of my parents uh, went through diseases, et cetera? And so with that, what we trust start to see is that big tech becomes indispensable for healthcare and education providers. And with the data that they get access to through their prediction tools, they start to attack the rest of the system, for the lack of a better word, by funding new ventures that are based on the data, uh, working with healthcare and kind of device manufacturers, developing new apps for tablets, and overall affecting the e ecosystem with the data that they provide into it through their own ventures or through partnerships. In the end, this is why we call it a digital colonization, because while the uh, primary service providers, meaning hospitals and schools, et cetera, are not changing necessarily, Google is not going to become your doctor. What's changing is the power in the industry. The power is shifting from primary uh, care providers to the ones who own and process the data. That's the gist of the paper. So thank you very much, Pinar, for the great summary of this great piece of research. I entered in the world of platforms, going back to the original question, actually looking at database business models. So it definitely resonates what, what you were presenting. And I think it's, it's really, really interesting. I was wondering if you can tell us something more on the implications that this kind of process has in your opinion or according to the data that that you that you gathered on the small firms that became voluntarily or not part of this process especially during the the, the pandemic the non voluntarily prob probably uh, was even greater uh, how do they react to this uh, entering from the side door probably of of the big tech in in what they do and in how they do it I think that's 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 a, a really critical question. Uh, how do how do incumbents, how do industry players respond to the entry of platforms? And there we see, um, especially you know, uh, talking to firms uh, quite a bit uh, as part of my research, I see two different reactions. One of them is really defensive mode, thinking, okay, you know, we're going to uh, try to strengthen our customer relationships, and we're going to almost pretend that big tech won't be there or isn't there. And we're just going to do what we do better. And in my opinion, that's not the right response, because there are certain ways in which you cannot fight big tech. Like you cannot do better AI than big tech. You cannot collect more data than big tech. And if your industry is changing such that com competition is based on data, then you cannot defend your position by closing your eyes. 
And so, um, in my opinion, a better way to think about a, a response to the entry of big tech into your industries to really redefine your uh, resources and capabilities and therefore your competitive advantage and thinking about what is it that I shouldn't do anymore because I know big tech is going to do it better than me. What is it that I should do more of or I should shift my role into in order for me to still have a position in this industry? Let me give you an example. I work a lot with uh, with uh, large banks as part of my research, and uh, they are very much um, aware and uh, afraid of the entry uh, of big tech into their uh, sector. And it is true, as you know, um, I also have some publications on that. Uh, big tech is very much starting with payments coming into finance and now doing more and more, including loans and uh, and and credit, etc. And so. Um, one of the ways in which a bank can have a future is not necessarily to do better AI than, than, than Google or Amazon, but to think about that trusted relationship that they built. I will always trust my bank much more than I will trust Google or Amazon. And so how can a bank build on that trust relationship and actually become an orchestrator of my financial presence on the internet while I might do some of the other financial, smaller financial services with, uh, with fintech or with big tech. How do I build that relationship and redefine myself as the trusted, almost, uh, let's say, advisor of the, of the customer, rather than try to do all sorts of fancy techie stuff myself? So that kind of rethinking of your identity and role in the industry is necessary when you have these large players that, whose business models are built on data. And what's worse is that that data isn't just coming from the, your industry, it's coming from all sorts of other industries. It's interesting, like seeing the platform, a possible initiator for innovation also in established industries that should react in a, in a positive way. That's yeah. cool. I think adding adding directly to to that, um, my my research is mostly related to industrial uh, platforms like manufacturing. Um, so B two B also pretty regulated. I see many similarities. I think you see them also like with your current work in finance. Um, and what I also see is that the the tech companies they acquire knowledge about the industry, deep knowledge about the industry, uh, knowledge and network. Um, and, and what I'd like to, to better understand is how you see uh, like the big tech companies and, and the cases that, that, um, that you observed, um, how they like tackled this challenge of acquiring industry knowledge and network and, and like getting to know the right, the right people, the right in institutions, and really getting a deep understanding of how to apply the technologies that they have to solve the problems of the different actors, right? Because in the end, it's still solving problems, providing value. So how, how, how did they do that? Um, in my research, then um, I see this both in healthcare and in finance, especially, um, there are two main methods, although they, they do it directly as well. It's typically through their indirect work in that industry first. Uh, the first way in which they, they, they acquire knowledge is that they actually have a, a lot of um, industry plays as their clients because they're tech providers. Google and Amazon and Apple, less. Apple uh, concentrates a lot more on the individual, but especially Microsoft. Imagine Microsoft's corporate relations for many decades now. 
these guys have enough corporate uh, presence uh, in in the industry before they enter directly that they actually understand they they actually have access to the data to a certain extent and this is going to be even more with you know AWS and you know Google Cloud etc especially for SMEs and what they do then is that that kind of access and those kinds of conversations and understanding the client's needs is their first step in understanding uh, the, the industry's needs. The other way in which they do that is they start to work with startups. They start to build platforms and there's enough startups, imagine in finance, all those fintech companies, all, the, all those biotech, uh, health tech companies. Those companies actually end up uh, finding um, a way to reach customers a lot easier through big tech than through incumbents. A hospital doesn't have the bandwidth or the understanding to work with a health tech company. Google does because Google has Google Health. And so um, typically big tech gathers industry information through their work with either large players in an IT role, IT relationship, or uh, by recruiting small innovative startups that are trying to solve problems that big tech can then pour money into. Pilar, you were mentioning, uh, you know, you are talk talking very freely about the usage of data for various purposes, the usage of many digital data. And obviously, <laughs> given what I said before and, and my background in, in, in research, I totally uh, like this way of thinking in creating value and exploiting the value that is embedded within this data. I cannot not think of the fact that when we move to the end user side, we still today see many strong reactions to the fact that corporations use uh, uh, data for, for various purposes. And in this case, talking about regulated industries, I think it's, it's even more relevant because we are talking about the healthcare uh, industry, also for education, but especially mm -hmm. for healthcare industry. I was wondering, since I often see dealing with professionals, a huge difference when you are on the corporation or just business side and when you are in the individual personal side. Uh, what did you find working with this organization in terms of uh, their willingness to use something based on data, to share their data, to have access to this data? What were the reactions of the companies and, and the feelings you got there? So this is this is perhaps one of the biggest issues that companies are going to face are facing and will face in the next decade. Um, a lot of them are understanding that their new competitors are purely data-driven players, and their what whatever they do is going to be based on analyzing data. And interestingly, incumbents have a lot of data. Like imagine a bank; it has it it has data from all sorts of uh, financial services for decades. However, the issue is because it's a regulated industry, because data is sensitive, uh, there's, uh, there has been very much uh, kind of both a, combina a combination of regulation and culture, which kind of feed one another, of not touching the data. One of my informants from a large bank, for example, told me, uh, Pinar, we look at data as biohazardous waste. We need to contain it once we generate it. We don't want to open that box just in case it leaks and kind of contaminates things, right? 
And so when you have this attitude, which very much is understandable because the regulators have been on your shoulders trying to kind of uh, uh, tell you uh, that you can't do anything wrong, even within uh, the same bank, different departments which gather different types of data about me can't talk to one another, at least historically. Now, when you have this culture, when you have sensitive data, which is very much the case, uh, the, the case for healthcare providers as well, then uh, suddenly thinking about how data is going to be your new competitive weapon is very difficult. It's scary. And while you trans- while you go through digital transformation, while you go, to, uh, go through data harmonization, a lot of things can go wrong. For example, a few years ago, one of the banks in the UK, while trying to migrate their data to a platform, uh, they gave access uh, to uh, their member, members of the bank, so their customers, access to somebody else's account for four consecutive days. They're still being investigated for the situation. Now, imagine the kind of nightmare that that would create for your bank. And so when data is sensitive, when you've been regulated heavily for decades, it's actually quite difficult to think of data and to think of a kind of letting your business model be driven by data. So there's a lot of cultural change that needs to happen, but at the same time, the IT itself needs to transform itself for these guys to come on the same level uh, uh, playing field with the big tech. That's that's interesting. You were mentioning it as one of the greatest barriers Uh, of of this evolution, of this transformation. Uh, What are, in your opinion, possible steps, possible actions that we as academics and companies also can can do to facilitate this this transition? This this is the million uh, uh, dollar, (laughs) euro, pound, whatever, uh, in fact. And I, I think about this perhaps every day. Uh, in my work. I think that uh, one of the ways in which we need to work with organizations is to to help them think of um, business models that allow them to experiment without really putting everything that they have at risk. So um, may it be, for example, regulators create sandboxes and now banks are starting to create sandboxes, safe environments where you get to play with data creating departments in which uh, data, uh, even if it's synthetic data to start with so that you don't touch the real data, in order for people to start to get familiar with using data in innovating based on data. We need need to work with them to show them what is possible because sitting in their four walls, it's not easy for them to think of these things in a different way. And so part of what I try to do is I try to look into what startups are doing. I try to bring that to the table with with incumbents and try to create partnerships between them and make them understand each other in order for them to innovate together. Because right now in a data-driven competition, startups have the innovation, but not the data. Incumbents don't have the innovation, but they have the data. So it's a, it's a very good win-win situation if they can figure out a way to work together, which is not always easy, I admit. I think, and, and your opinion would be very, very interesting on that, Pinar. Um, it might even become an, an advantage if you're not big tech, uh, if you're if you're uh, providing these kind of critical services, because as you describe it in the piece, they, the companies go in with a pretty linear value proposition at first right mm-hmm. they they analyze data they offer insights based on the data and then gradually they more and more kind of open this up and platformatize if you want to say it 
uh, like that um, uh, the, the the operations. But in the beginning, it's it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, so, like first question, do you do you see that that this is actually uh, like that? These especially the the public um, institutions, I could could see a, a very critical view on big tech there, and that is maybe even growing to to work with them um, and maybe actively looking for for startup uh, alternatives. Um, and then second piece would be um, how do you see maybe the the opening in these um, in these uh, industries like the platformization, uh, if you say so, uh, like bringing in external actors and really like kicking this off. How, how do you see that that come? Yeah, absolutely. So I see, especially public institutions and kind of state actors, etc., understanding first of all regulators understanding that their role is is now more and more merging with technology and data. And they need to both understand and orchestrate data. And if they don't do that, big tech will. And so that is, in a sense, that there's an interesting dynamic between regulators and uh, big tech. And what I also see is that there are now startups and mid-sized companies that are doing a pretty good job in handling data in a secure and ethical way. And these these improvements really excite me because they provide an alternative for especially for large institutions and for governments, et cetera, to not have to work with big tech if they don't want to. And especially when you introduce regulations such as open banking, which gives access to financial data to new entrants, licensed new entrants, if you take that idea and apply it to other uh, sectors, which, which is very much the future with the open data movement, then you may end up in a situation where governments find tech partners who are not big tech to work with that together handle the data they, in a safe and ethical way and also gain the trust of the, of the citizens in this way. And to your other question of whether whether I see uh, ecosystems building in these, in these industries, absolutely. Uh, with uh, data being analyzed across sectors, not just by big tech, but also by by startups and you know governments understanding that what they do in finance has implications for education, has implications for insurance, and and many other industries. Industry boundaries are being blurred. And cross-industry players are very much uh, on the rise. And this is not just big tech. Big tech is already cross-industry. But uh, Ernst & Young or Accenture or McKinsey may become your financial providers in the future. Similarly, your bank might become your tech and kind of uh, overall uh, workplace uh, tech provider. Depending on um, what it makes for them to extend into, we will see more and more cross-industry solutions being offered. And in order to offer those, you need to have an ecosystem. And this is closing the loop, going back to your first answer on where you started from. Thank you very much for bringing us through your piece of research, your view of platforms. And here we go with the other tradition of the podcast, which is a closing question. Uh, If we asked you at the beginning where you started from, we would ask you now, what do you see in the future of platforms? Which may mean what you're working on, what do you think it's the next big deal for the world of platform professionals? (laughs) What do you see coming? (laughs) 
Well, uh, I'll answer it in two ways. What is the future of platform research? I think that we are now in an interesting stage where a lot of my colleagues, and including myself, are uh, finding ourselves in a position where we can't ignore the ethical and the regulatory aspects of platforms. They, platforms were a kind of fun and cute phenomenon at the beginning when Annabelle was first looking at them. We were surprised that they could be so successful. And, you know, we were trying to understand why, et cetera. But now they're so in our face that we need to regulate them. We need to make sure that they don't take over things that we, we'd like to keep, right? And so, uh, and just like Annabelle, uh, many of us are now thinking about um, how we can help regulators think about uh, digital platforms. In my opinion, the next decade is going to be a decade of curbing the powers of big tech and trying to figure out what the right way is to regulate data and platforms. And so that's, I think, maybe an answer to the first question. And the second question, my work, you know, uh, has taken me uh, very much with still within the area of digital platforms into the world of AI startups. So I'm fascinated by how AI uh, it can be AI start, what uh, business models AI startups have, uh, what does it mean to be dependent on data? How do you get data? How do you treat data? In, in a sense, looking at data as a critical resource for, for startups and trying to understand how these guys make it, especially in, a, in an environment where all the data flows to big tech. So that's, that's probably what I'll be doing a bit more of within the field of entrepreneurship. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting work to come. Um, closing question, uh, Pina. If people want to follow your work, follow you, and uh, maybe get in touch, what's what's the best way to, to do that? Oh, I would love that. Um, the easiest way is probably uh, you, they can they can send me an email. It's profpinar at gmail.com. Um, but at the same time, I also post quite a bit about research and, and world news on Twitter, profpinar at Twitter. And um, and also, uh, I am the academic director of a research institute, which is Oxford Future of Finance and Technology Research Institute, where we also publish a, a platform research, not just finance research. And so that's also they can Google that and find out some of the, some of the most recent papers. Yeah, thank you. We will also link it in the, in the show notes. Wonderful. Thank you. So that people can find it easily. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Pinar. Uh, that was that was very exciting. I think the piece is super, super valuable. So for me, like the, the like just the, the case study descriptions are so rich and, and so insightful to better understand big tech and how they enter uh, these uh, relevant markets. Um, I think you you made it very accessible. Um, and yeah, just thank you so much for for joining us and just the best for for your future work. Thank you so much, guys. It's always so fun to talk about these issues and, uh, and I hope that we can do it in the future again. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking About Platforms. To support our work, you can rate the episode or leave a comment on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't miss out on the coming episodes. If you want to look up at the papers we have discussed or other topics we addressed, visit talkingaboutplatforms.com. There you can find the show notes and get in touch with us. Until next time, when we're again talking about platforms.